Well, good morning. Today, yes. Well, the introduction will take a while. Yeah. Okay. Make, making a transition here for. Well, okay. <laughs> Today we look into a scene in Jesus' early childhood. Um, according to Luke, as he gives it in this middle section of Luke chapter 2, we were going through this series on, on the book of Luke. And, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot about Christ's childhood, does it? But Luke gives us more than any of the other three Gospels. And the scene is the Temple of Jerusalem, where Mary and Joseph have brought their uh, firstborn son, Jesus, to dedicate him to the Lord, according to the law of Moses, uh, dedicating the first child. And um, this took place at the end of uh, Mary's purification period of 40 days after she delivered a child, uh, again, according to the law of Moses. And it says that they, um, they gave uh, sacrifices of doves and pigeons also in keeping with the law of Moses. So we find on this one occasion they're fulfilling three commandments of Moses, which I think is an indication of their faithfulness in, in the practice of their Jewish religion. Apparently, Luke wants us to know that Jesus was raised by pious parents of the Hebrew faith. Now, while they were in the temple, they met two very interesting but unrelated individuals, Simeon and Anna, two senior citizens who liked hanging out in the temple, uh, which reminds me of, of something that Bill Cosby said in one of his classic monologues. He said, when I was a kid, I always wondered why there were so many gray-haired people in church. And he finally concluded, it's because their time is short and they're trying to get ready to go. <laughs> I think there probably is some truth to that. But Luke, Luke describes Simeon as a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna was a prophetess who was 84 years old. And it says that she stayed in the temple worshiping night and day, fasting and praying. Luke adds that she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, for my mass message today, I chose to speak on Simeon rather than Anna. And uh, I don't want to be accused of being a male chauvinist because of this choice. Um, it's not possible to live with Barbara Deal for 48 years and still be a male chauvinist. <laughs> but but uh, uh, Luke says more about Simeon than Anna, so that's why I, I'll blame it on Luke. At any rate, I have three observations that, about Simeon and his words. And the first is that Simeon holds in his heart the Old Testament hope of Messiah. Let me read these uh, verses again that, that um, Maria read. Uh, verses uh, th uh, 28 to 32. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. Now, these words of Simeon were expressing his heart's desire, his, his dream, his passion in life. He, like many Jews of that age, were hoping that finally, after hundreds of years, the Messiah would finally come. And Luke tells us in uh, verse 26 that the Holy Spirit had revealed to uh, Simeon that he would not die before his dream, his hope, was realized. So now Simeon's, Simeon's words were, were nothing more than the Old Testament prophecies. Sometimes New Testament critics accuse the gospel writers of inventing stories or words of Jesus that really weren't relevant until later on uh, when the church was developed. But, but there's nothing New Testamentish about Simeon's words here. It was what you would expect a pre-Christian Jew to, to say about Israel's hope. They hoped that the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3 would be fulfilled in the Messianic age. That promise was that through the descendants of Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And uh, from David's time on, that blessing was to be realized through the kingship of David's descendants, according to 2 Samuel 2. And in passages like the very familiar passage, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, the famous for unto us a child is born passage, we find in that passage that a particular descendant of David is the one who's going to establish this universal um, and everlasting kingdom. But Simeon's words in particular echo another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 46, uh, 49, 6, Isaiah 49, 6, where God is speaking to this mysterious person which God calls my servant. And this is what God says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine then what Simeon must have felt when somehow the Holy Spirit led him to see that this little tiny baby that Mary and Joseph were bringing into the temple is the true Messiah? Wow. Imagine him taking the baby in his arms and saying, Okay, Lord. I'm old and ready to go. <laughs> I have seen your salvation. The glory of the people of Israel and the, and the light to the Gentiles. Uh, this tiny one in Simeon's hands then was the hope of the world. And that leads me to a second observation. Simeon not only holds in his heart this hope of the Old Testament Messiah, but he now holds in his hands, the Lord of creation. Now, Simeon doesn't say that. He no doubt was not aware of what the New Testament was going to teach about the divinity of Messiah, though subtle hints of it were appear throughout the Old Testament. But I insert this into my outline because I want to include the New Testament context into this scene as it really is. That Simeon is not only holding in his hands the promised messianic son of David, but he is holding in his hands the Lord and maker of creation. Think of it. The word 
who created all things and became flesh to dwell among us, as John 1 says. Imagine holding in your hands a teeny baby, perhaps not just six weeks old, who is also the eternal creator of the whole universe, a universe of billions of galaxies, each galaxy having billions of stars and planets, plus everything else that is in creation that we don't even know anything about, all in this little bundle. Now, if that doesn't jar your mind, I don't know what else would. And I want us to think about that a little bit, that awesome thought. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am not saying that this physical infant body that Simeon holds is God. I'm not saying that. That would be idolatry. I'm not even saying that the child's human psyche is divine. What am I saying? Words at this point fail to adequately express what the Bible, I think, is teaching here. But what the church has always understood by the New Testament teaching of the incarnation is that the person of the eternal son took on a full human nature and united it with his divine nature in one person. This is clearly stated in the pronouncements of a 5th century council, the Council of Chalcedon, which maybe many of you have heard about, which was a council of the bishops of 451 who got together and came up with a statement of what they feel the New Testament is teaching about this mysterious doctrine of the Incarnation, a statement that Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox churches agree is a good statement of Christian truth. They don't agree that it's infallible necessarily, but they agree it's a good statement of Christian truth. Let me read some sentences from that council. The council says of Christ, he is the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned, and of the same reality as we ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. They further go on and say, we also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ in two natures, and we do so without confusing the two natures. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person. They are not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and the only, the only begotten word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified. Thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Thus the symbol of the fathers has handed down to us. So said the bishops of the fifth century. Now, what I understand the council will be saying is that in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God took on a full human nature, uniting it with his full divine nature in one person, so that whatever you attribute to either nature, you can attribute to the person as a whole. For example, we human beings get hungry and thirsty, and we suffer, and we eventually die. Jesus experienced all those things. He did so by his human nature, but as a person. 
as a divine person. Through his human nature, he experienced all those things. He also is a creator and sustainer of all things. He does those things through his divine nature. But as a single person, he, Jesus, does those things. That is what I think the church believes the doctrine of the incarnation to teach. Now, this doctrine just does not make sense to the non-Christian. Judaism rejects it. Islam rejects it. Hinduism rejects it, as does any secular person. I mean, it seems absurd. It seems like a contradiction, a foolish myth. I mean, how in the world could the infinite, eternal God become finite man in time? It's just crazy. <laughs> so why do we Christians believe it? I think I'll give you a half a minute to think about that before I attempt an answer myself. Why do we believe in the incarnation of the eternal Son of God? I guess 30 seconds are up. <laughs> Any ideas? Now, I'm a former teacher, and uh, I have students who, who talk back to me. I'm used to that. So if you've come up with any ideas, you can let me know. Why do you, if you are a Christian, why do you believe in this incredible teaching? Any ideas? The evidence. What evidence? Okay. okay, so it's taught by the Bible, huh? That's one answer, sure. Any others? Okay, the church from the very beginning were testifying themselves. All right. What's that? Didn't Jesus claim it? Okay, because not just the Bible teaches it, but the recording of what Christ himself said. Okay, that's another reason. Is there anything else? Paul in Philippians 2 saying how God gave up everything. Yes. Yeah, again, part of the teaching of the, of the New Testament. Yes, Mike? For, so, for God so loved the world. Okay, it's the message of how God, what God did when he so loved the world. Yeah. Okay. There are a lot of different answers that we could give. I would like to focus in on three reasons, possibly four, which uh, re relate to some of the things you just said. Now, let's start by getting this out. There is no scientific or philosophical proof for the incarnation. If you're looking for some final, absolute, logical argument, there is no such thing. But that doesn't mean there aren't good reasons for believing in it. And let's look at three. First, and most simply, the biblical reason. The Bible teaches it, as some of you have just said. For example, John 1, which I've already referred to, says that the Word was with God in the beginning, and that the Word was God, and that this Word created all things, 
But then this word became flesh and dwelled among us as one of us. And by the time you get down to uh, verses 17, 18, you reach the astonishing uh, realization that this word that became flesh is none other than the man, Jesus Christ, who, in the very same verse, is the eternal son with the father. Now, what in the world do you do with a passage like that? And then Paul, over in Colossians uh, 1, verses 16, 7, says that Christ is the creator of all things, and all things are hold together by him. All things hold together by him. And then Hebrews, first three verses of Hebrews, said that God has revealed, us, revealed himself to us in these times through his Son, through whom he created all things. And who sustains the world by his powerful word. But he also came to make purification for sins. But then it goes on in the next couple of chapters of Hebrews to say that in order to make purification for sins, he had to be made like us human beings in every respect except for sin. And, and, and that he had to be flesh and blood and share in our humanity even through suffering and death, in order to become our great high priest. And many other passages we can look at say the same thing. So it seems pretty clear that the Bible does teach this. But there is a prior question here, of course, and that is, why do Christians believe the Bible in the first place? <laughs> now that shifts us from a biblical question to a question that apologetics has to deal with, and that is the reason defense of the Christian faith. And if you're interested in that question, see me afterwards. A second reason why Christians believe, and I think this might get also to what Peter was talking about, is a historical reason. And that is that Jesus' life, as presented in the four Gospels, makes such an incredible belief seems strangely believable. If you examine all that the Gospels say about Jesus, what he did, what he taught, how he lived, it, 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 I reach the irresistible conclusion that if there really is a God in heaven, he certainly must have to come, he must have come to us in a very special way in this man Jesus. At least that. Consider especially the reactions of people as the Gospels record them, the disciples who say, who is this? Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't say obey God. They say obey him, this man Jesus. And the religious leaders ask, who is this that claims to be Lord of the Sabbath? I mean, God ordained the Sabbath. How can any man claim to be Lord of the Sabbath? What kind of claim is that? Who is this that claims to forgive sins? Who is this that heals the sick and raises the dead? Who is this that says, I am the bread come down from heaven? Who is this that says, before Abraham was, I am? The picture of this man, Jesus, as given in the four Gospels, is, has got to be the most extraordinary person in human history. Of course, this second reason has a prior question too, doesn't it? Namely, how do we know that the life of Christ given in the Gospels is real history and not myth? 
And that too then takes us to the question of apologetics. And if you're interested in that question, see me afterwards too. <laughs> now actually, I have a sheet out on the table there, that long table halfway down the foyer, um, a sheet that outlines an answer to some of these questions. It's called A Case for Christ in the Bible. You can pick it up and has some bibliographical references. But let me go on to the third reason for belief in the Incarnation, and that is the theological reason. That reason says that the doctrine of the Incarnation is coherent with and unifies all the other doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of sin, atonement, salvation, the kingdom, so forth. Let me illustrate. Take the doctrine of creation, which says that God made man in his own image, created him male and female. I think that means that God made us to have a relationship with him and to reflect reflect his character in our humanity. But because of our sin, we just did a very poor job of that. We just can't do what God desires that we do. So God himself came and became one of us in order to live among us and show us how we can fulfill that desire, that will that God has for us. Uh, take the uh, doctrine of atonement. Because of our sin, none of us can make an adequate atonement for all of our sins. So God finally came to us and fulfilled, as a human being, God's perfect will. And then having no sin of his own, he went and through his sufferings and death and resurrection made a full atonement for us. Thus you see the necessity of the incarnation given the doctrines of sin and atonement. What about the doctrine of the kingdom? The New Testament picks up on this Old Testament teaching that uh, there, there would be a special messianic son of David who would establish a universal kingdom that would last forever. Now think about it. What man would be worthy of being king of a kingdom of all human beings for all times into the future. Who in the world would be worthy of that? Enter the incarnation and you have a man who is worthy. The man Jesus, God's own son. Now have I proven anything? No. Except to show that the doctrine of the incarnation fits beautifully with all the other teachings. There is a fourth uh, reason or that uh, is often given, and that is the witness, of the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that is that God's Spirit inwardly witnesses to us that these teachings are the truth. And I think it's important to consider that because, as I said before, we don't have any absolute scientific or philosophical proof of this. But I thought it was important that I give at least those first three reasons so that you would see that we have reasons why. Even if we don't understand this mystery, we can understand why God did it. It may be an inscrutable mystery, which is absurd to a lot of people, but it does make sense. It's incomprehensible, isn't it? But it is apprehensible. So once again, consider this awesome, majestic, 
yet tender moment when Simeon held in his arms the Lord and maker of creation. A third and final observation I make about this temple scene and about Simeon in particular, and that is Simeon not only holds in his heart the Old Testament hope of Messiah, he not only holds in his hands the Lord of creation, but he holds in his head a foreboding message. Of course, he didn't just hold it in his head. It, he spoke it to Mary and Joseph, but forgive me for my feeble attempt at alliteration here. Let me read verses 34 and 35. Uh, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. Now the, these words, uh, I'm sorry, got my next notes mixed up here. These words that Simeon tells Mary about a division in Israel and a sword that would pierce Mary. It's, it's, it's a prophecy the Holy Spirit gave Simeon, but it's not of a literal sword piercing Mary's body, but of the sword of sorrow, evidently, that would have pierced Mary's soul. Now, I doubt that Simeon knew the details of what this sorrow would be. But apparently God wanted Mary to know that there was going to be great sorrow ahead. Why? Why do you think that Mary would want to know this? I think he was preparing her for the kind of life that Jesus would live and, and experience. Within times, he would come to learn that he would be rejected by many Israelites. Especially the leadership would reject him. And he would be persecuted and rebuffed. And finally condemned to die at a Roman cross. Notice the dramatic contrast between Simeon's earlier words and, and the turning to this foreboding message. The, the earlier words, the hope of Messiah, the joyful declaration that Messiah is here, salvation has come, light to the Gentiles, and so forth. And then there is this message of sorrow. Why should Simeon end on such a sad note. I mean, you could imagine what Mary and Joseph would think at the earlier message. I mean, we're, we're going to be parents of the Messiah. <coughs> wow. We'll be parents of royalty and we'll, we'll live in a palace and we'll see, uh, we'll see our son conquer the world and establish a kingdom of righteousness. Whoa. Oh, but... Uh, they could be easily get they could easily get the wrong impression, right? Of what kind of life that Jesus would grow up to live. It's sort of like what Dick said a couple of weeks ago in his sermon that that we could get the wrong idea and wonder if Christmas has really come. Remember that? So it was necessary for Simeon to give a prophecy of sadness, not the details, but a word to prepare Mary for what would be. She would later learn that Jesus would not fulfill his messiahship by taking up the sword and gathering an army of thousands. No, she would learn, rather, that Jesus needed to fulfill his messiahship 
by going the way of the cross because his deliverance would not be the deliverance of Israel and the nations from the iron rule of Rome, but his deliverance would be the deliverance of the whole world from sin and its consequences. And the only way he could do that was first by fulfilling the law, by fulfilling God's perfect will, and then making atonement for our sins. This is what the New Testament teaches about the way of salvation through Christ. Now, you can, re you can reject this teaching if you want, but then if you still believe in some kind of God or some kind of supreme being, then I guess you'll have to consider some alternative way of salvation. You could con consider the uh, Hindu way of salvation through meditation, or you can consider uh, the Muslim way, that you'll make it to heaven if your good works outweigh your bad works, or you can just hope that God will be merciful to you no matter how bad you've sinned. It's your choice. I choose to look to Christ and his righteousness, not my righteousness, his atonement, not any atonement that I could make, his life, death and resurrection for my salvation. And if you've never looked to Christ in that way before, but are interested, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Shall we pray? Lord God, this is, this is a difficult teaching to understand. But when we consider who you are, the holy yet loving God and creator of all things, and we, when we consider who we are, a special creation made to reflect your image, and uh, we have messed up so badly, and we can understand something of why you and your great love came to us as one of us to bring us back to yourself. Lord, strengthen us in that faith. And may your Holy Spirit help us to live out that faith that we might work your kingdom's work here on earth. In Christ's name.